The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show episode 366. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hey, Noah, good morning. Guess what? Big show today. Joining us on the show is the lead developer of Bodhi Linux, a really interesting distribution based on Ubuntu that showcases the Enlightenment desktop in a way you've maybe never seen it before. So Jeff's going to join us and talk about that. Also, the challenges he might face as Ubuntu transitions to snappy packages and a transaction base. He's going to talk about that and where that could lead and the potential benefits for his distribution. And then, speaking of Canonical... In the news segment, Mark Shuttleworth says they might go IPO. Well, what is an IPO and what would that mean for the future desktop of Ubuntu? We'll talk about that. Plus, Firefox OS has some major plans changing for their mobile phones. And there's some also maybe upsetting news for Firefox web users. We'll discuss what all of that's about. Plus, Intel's new Linux distribution, the feedback, and of course, our picks. Our picks? Huge. I mean, like, I love it, Noah. And uh, so I wanted to start with the runs Linux this week because... It really showcased how a community member in our subreddit can seriously hook us up with a really awesome Runs Linux. Like, he went out and did some research for this. He got the video clip for it. It came in by George Chalkins, <laughs> I think is how you say his name, or Chalkits. And uh, it is a really cool Runs Linux. The Hunt for Gravitational Waves runs Linux. And this one was so neat that after I watched this video, I was inspired to find out what the hunt for gravitational waves is and why it is actually going to be a huge, huge scientific breakthrough. It's going to give science essentially another sense out into space. They're going to be able to watch how gravity affects atoms and they bob in and out of the universe as sort of like the way they can look at UV light and things like that. This project is attempting to do that and they're using Linux to make it all happen. Now, Noah, if you are a keen observer and you look at the screenshot I'm about to show you, you may uh -huh. notice an iMac in that shot. Are you seeing that? You see that iMac I, in there? Uh, you don't need to be, have a keen shot to notice <coughs> yeah, that ugly is, thing sitting in the... It's right there. Yeah. In fact, there's a couple behind him, too. No, I have yes. good news about the operating system that runs on those very iMacs. I'll play this video for you, and uh, you keep an eye out for the Linux. It's one of these time lapses. They're moving through the area, working through the research, getting the data all set up. A couple of shots of the crew here. Now, Apple keyboard, Apple mouse, looks like a MacBook right there. But then what OS is it that's running on that iMac right there? Looks like Ubuntu oh, right there. Looks like Ubuntu. Oh, I see Ubuntu. So they've loaded, and there it is on the iMac. I don't know if you saw that shot there. And there's, uh, there's another iMac running it. They've loaded Ubuntu on their iMacs. It might even be the uh, Mate desktop or at least the GNOME 2 variant. Look at oh. all those iMacs are running Ubuntu. And all of those I screens see. up there are running Ubuntu. I say Unity. You think? I see. I, well, I don't see anything panel? Unity specific. I don't see uni anything Unity specific. But usually, if you're when you install the Mate desktop, you get a different wallpaper, don't you? Mm, I don't know. I guess so. I, that is a good point. That Maybe looks they like just have they a bottom panel. Uh, so uh, I I actually was so impressed by this that uh, I went and looked up at the uh, article over at the Guardian that he links to, and mm -hmm. uh, the day basically, if you're curious about this, the the scientists hope to have a breakthrough. Uh, in January 2017, and they say it's the equivalent of astronomers discovering a whole new sense with telescopes that can receive the universe. By detecting gravitational waves, they'll be able to listen to the universe. They'll be able to hear stars colliding with one another, the destruction of matter falling into black holes, and the catastrophic de detonation of distant massive stars. They can be thought of as wave motions that ripple across the universe, causing atoms to bob like boats on a choppy ocean. 
and the difficulty in detecting them comes from the size of the displacement, which is much smaller than the width of an atom. And so they got Linux loaded up on all of these rigs, chewing through all of this. And there is a TEDx talk linked in the Guardian article that talks more about gravitational wave astronomy. I don't know, Noah. Something about, something about Linux powering us to discover a new sense to search yeah. out the universe from our home base. It's pretty mm -hmm. cool. It is, and you have to think, it's, it's yet again another, just, just one other time where when you have to have something that has to be super reliable and super robust and super powerful, they don't go to Mac, they don't go to Windows, mm -mm. they go to Linux. And, and you know, I, I, I guess at, at some point you just kind of stop being surprised about it, right? Like, well, that would, if you would have, if you would ask, if I were to ask, I would say, what do you think the prominent operating system that powers, you know, a lot of uh, NASA stuff, I mean, what, 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 would, what would your guess be? That's just not so uncommon anymore. Yeah, that is true. It is not super uncommon, but here's, <clears throat> here's where I think, where I was surprised, and then we can move on. It's not a huge deal, but... Uh, the fact that they're – so I was looking at those machines. They're, they look like older iMacs, some of their earlier mm -hmm. Intel iMacs. And what I love that they did there is I think they loaded a like a, a like a Mate or an older low-resources version of Ubuntu, and they're getting life out of these super expensive machines they bought for research. That Maybe back in the day there was Mac OS-only specific software they needed. And so mm -hmm. they loaded these Macs. They bought these Macs. They paid a ton of money, a premium, to get iMacs with large screens and big hard drives and lots of memory. But by today's standards, they might not even be able to install Yosemite on them anymore. So right. they can put Linux on there and continue to just crunch these huge numbers, make these breakthrough discoveries, and not really worry about getting their latest version from the Mac App Store, but mm -hmm. instead just, just use Linux. And I, I love yep. that about it. And I love that somewhere in the background in January 2017, if we hear a major breakthrough, we'll remember that that was done on Linux. It's pretty neat. Right. I'll tell you about another major breakthrough. That's right. It's our first sponsor, DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now. In fact, if you're over at DigitalOcean, you should probably use our promo code of absolute power, and that is last digital, L-A-S, digital, one word, lowercase, and that's going to give you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You don't know, you don't know what DigitalOcean is? You don't? That's like one of the coolest public use cases of Linux right there on the web. DigitalOcean is a success story because they've built their Linux, they built their system around Linux. They're able to go in and, they, so it really, it was a several things, I think, for DigitalOcean. It was the fact that they based it around SSDs. I think that was super insightful because when they originally got the company rolling and got that set up, that was a big bet. So that was pretty insightful. Uh, then they really chose the best data centers possible. So they spent some money up front to make that right. When it came to the software stack, there's a lot of ways that could have gone back then. It might have, it wasn't like a huge leap to go with KVM, but it was definitely not a proven virtualizer back then. It had a really good potential, but because DigitalOcean has the insights into the community, they work in there. And that, and you know what the thing is, is that is even true today. Like when they roll out new distributions, they work directly with those distributions to get updates right to them. Like when they rolled out FreeBSD, they worked with the FreeBSD community. They really understand the community. So they saw where KVM was going and they knew Linux was the sure bet. So they based their entire enterprise on that and then they wrapped it around the incredible digital ocean experience look at this dashboard go over to digitalocean.com and look at the demo of their dashboard it's so intuitive and so simple and i love like everything can be done in your browser on your mobile or on your desktop even getting console access to your droplet they have an html5 console that they written go that's embedded in your web browser and you can watch it from post all the way up to login i love it Go over to DigitalOcean. You can start in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte. A terabyte. A terabyte of transfer. Like, go seed your favorite distribution towards the end of the month. I mean, it's just crazy, a terabyte of transfer. And if you use the promo code LASTDIGITAL, 
you'll get a $10 credit. And I love this. I love making Linux its absolute best. I love taking something that used to be a massive endeavor that clients would pay me a lot of money to set up, and now it is as simple as getting started in less than 55 seconds. Noah, as somebody who's rolling out services for clients all the time, DigitalOcean's got to be a lifesaver for you. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, the way that DigitalOcean has their, um, their uh, the, the way they have it set up is I, I can build a, a, a server that we roll out for, uh, for different clients. So for example, um, we do some work in the medical industry. And so we have an EMR solution that's set up. Well, rather than, uh, in, you know, I can create the droplet easily enough, but rather than having to install the software stack on top of it and then make all the tweaks we want, we have the entire EMR stack ready to go. And all I have to yeah. do then is drop their data in there and, and then create their users yep. and they're good to go. And if they're migrating, just drop, I, I literally copy the folder over and start the program up and it runs. Um, and uh, you were watching, uh, you know, the one of the first uh, episodes we ever did of last in in studio, um, I had a problem with my mail server, and it was the same thing where I took the the program file, I moved it over to DigitalOcean because I already had the the basic setup, and and then uh, and then created a droplet, a customized droplet that had all all of my software on it, and that's one of those things that it just that wasn't possible, uh, you know. Five seven no, years ago, we just no. we couldn't do stuff and like not, that, and not with this UI, and not with this elegancy, and not with also like I love being able to send droplets to other DigitalOcean accounts, which is great for client handoffs. Yeah. If you're just doing tech mm -hmm. support with somebody, and you know something else I wanted to mention is DigitalOcean is hiring Linux sysadmins, and they specifically want me to plug that because uh, they know that the JB audience is the sharpest audience out there for this stuff. So you guys are getting the first heads up on this. They have a careers page over DigitalOcean. Specifically, they're hiring all kinds of positions, but they wanted me to plug Linux sysadmins and uh, technical writers. They have positions open for that, including if you just want to write for them, and they'll pay up to they'll pay. I think they they used to do up to two hundred dollars for really good submissions. So go over to DigitalOcean and check all of that out. The careers, uh, the writing positions, and remember our promo code Last Digital, so that way you can try out a droplet two months for free with for ten bucks. You'll get a ten dollar credit and. You can apply that to your account after you've made the account. So if you forget to use the promo code, just log back into your account and use the promo code last digital. You get the $10 credit, and you'll just get to try the $5 rig out for two months. I love it. I mean, it's such a great system. Uh, I think if I was still doing IT contract contracting like you do today, this would mm -hmm. be a total game changer for me. It'd just be an yeah. absolute game changer. And I, I've recently, I know that I'm late to the game on this, but with their API, they have the digital swimmer, or uh, uh, yeah. I think that's what's called, swimmer. Yeah. And so I have it on my phone. Yep. Now, now I can keep an eye on my droplets. Yeah, on I've got a phone. couple. I've, I've actually, there's a couple of different community-made apps that are really good because the API rocks. And so mm -hmm. uh, DO Swimmer, yeah, DO Swimmer is the one I'm using right now, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. I like that one. And then I can, like, I can you can actually create a virtual machine from your phone. <laughs> right. That <laughs> blows my mind. All right, DigitalOcean. Com, use the promo code last digital. Thank you, Digital Ocean. Thank you, Rikai, for our desktop app pick this week. Uh, this one was submitted by Rikai and editor of the show, so we have to go with that because otherwise you probably yeah. just edit in regardless. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's actually what I told him. I don't know if you saw. I don't know. No, if it was I didn't see that. Chapter. No, I didn't. Uh, so he he goes here. He goes here. I have a I have an app pick for you, and I said so. I suppose I don't have a I don't suppose I don't have a choice really to use it because if, well if we don't use it then you'll just put it in anyway and yeah. then we'll just yeah. look like a like a bunch of yahoos yeah. talking about some other app. I guess um, so. But it's language language tool, and I don't know if you had a chance uh, to look at it in depth, mm -hmm. but um, essentially what it does is it, it, it automates proofreading. So I tried oh. to install the plugin for LibreOffice, and I was unsuccessful. It didn't quite work. 
um, the the uh, it, it supposedly you could have so you can type your document in LibreOffice and then uh, activate this this plugin and and then it will proofread your text. Now I did have uh, I did have success installing the Firefox oh, uh, add-on, really? which is super super helpful cool. because you know those internet arguments that you get in yeah. that you always kind of wished. Yeah. Uh, you know <laughs> that you, and then, you, and then that they catch you up on right grammar there. instead of like what you actually right. said. Yeah. Which, by the way, pro tip: once they start correcting your grammar, that means you've, you've won. won the argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, but so the Firefox ad uh, worked and worked very well, I might add. Um, and then the standalone run version, while it technically worked, I was a little bit concerned because I just don't see myself firing up a separate program, mm. copying text into it. You know what you it, need, dude. Then, you know what you need. Check this out. They have a Vim plugin, so you have you have yeah. you have Quake terminal running all the time with Vim. You just go in there, and type mm -hmm. in what you need, and run it, and you're good to go. So I don't even see I don't even see myself doing that. Yeah. I, I'm not going to open up another program. Yeah. I don't. I think it needs to be integrated, much like Spellcheck so is, they've got, is integrated. Um, they've got uh, Mozilla Thunderbird integration. They've got uh, mm -hmm. like you mentioned Firefox, LibreOffice. And uh, this is this is like uh, this is like a language tool on steroids. Way better than what's built into like your LibreOffice type program and stuff like that. Very much so. Very yeah. much so. Um, and so I, you know, I played with it. It's it's definitely something that I'm going to work a little harder to get it in in uh, working with LibreOffice. I suspect it's it's just a versioning difference. But uh, if if and when I can get it to work, I I imagine this is going to become one of those must-have tools. Like once I redo my computer, it's going to be one of the first things that are back on there because really? I, I'm not a terribly oh I'm not a terribly good writer to begin with. And right now I'm using <clears throat> I was using other tools to 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 kind of to kind of accomplish the same thing. And I, from from judged on my base my usage in Firefox, I, I only used it a couple days. I had a busy week, but based on my use it is amazing and it does a, it, mm. it does an excellent job and I think it's going to become one of those staples that I'm going to use nonstop. Well, yeah. for you Arch fans, uh, there is a lang the language tool extension for LibreOffice, OpenOffice, and Vim are all in the AUR. So I would I would bet language tool itself is probably in the package repo. Let me uh, let me see. We'll do a little package search for it. If it is, I could give it an install and give it a go because man, heavens knows I could use the uh, the uh, tool. Yeah, it's so it's in the Arch repo. I'll install it right now. And launch it because, you know, like, <laughs> I'm so bad, Noah, I could even use this, like, uh, before I send out a tweet. You know, like, I could, yeah. I could run yeah. my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I don't know how I would handle Twitter, uh, Twitter uh, verbiage, but uh, let's see. All right, <laughs> so I'm, I'm giving a launch. It looks like the, uh, the program itself is about, uh, about uh, 70 megabytes. So 70 megabyte mm -hmm. download, and then about 145 megabytes once it's installed. But thankfully, we have a pretty fast connection here, so that's already downloaded and installed. Uh, and it looks like it needs... Oh... Huh? It needs the Java runtime for the GUI version. So if you need, if you want the command line version, uh, you don't need Java. But um, you know, and I don't have Java runtime. Wow, Noah, I don't have multilib turned on, so I'm not gonna. So let's see here. Now, let's see, can I can I run it without? Uh, and oops, survey says no. Since I don't have Java installed, I don't get the GUI. So you might need that. That could still be a thing. But yeah. I, I have it on the command line at least. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You play with it a little bit. Like I said, I think really oh, for I got me it. to be no, useful. Hold on, I'm oh, sorry. Really? Not to interrupt you, but I'm sorry. I did get it actually. I'm full of crap. You don't need Java to get the GUI going. Okay. Yeah, there it is. It just so looks do really you see bad. Yourself, I was gonna, well. Do you see yourself opening up a separate tool just to? I mean, you know, I don't know. I just don't see it. Just not you me. know what I could? You know how I would integrate this is I would just leave it running all the time. And mm -hmm. I actually have sometimes I do sometimes prefer to compose things in G Edit and then paste them into like Telegram yeah. or Twitter. So yep, I could just yep. use this instead. 
and then just run. I can't say that. I've ever composed anything in Gedit. I have composed things in LibreOffice and then pasted them into Telegram, but that's to correct my horrendous spelling. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. So so I've done that, but again, if you know, with a little bit of tweaking, how how much work do you think it would be, or how long do you think it'll be before a tool like this becomes? Uh, part of the system, and then everywhere I write text, you know, perhaps I can have that plug in and, and it will integrate with any, yeah, any app. Yeah, very, very, very likely. P- more and more people will integrate it if it, uh, if it takes off. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. is a uh, language tool, and uh, you can find it at languagetool.org. And Noah, it is now time to give a little love to a open source project. And those of you who like Armorock but want something in the web might really like Groove Basin. Groove Basin is a music player server with a web based user interface inspired by Armorock 1.4, the older version. It runs on a server, and you just have then you know go to a client with connected to some speakers and listen to your dang music. It's got a responsive UI, dynamic playlist mode, drag and drop upload from your desktop, MPD protocol support, streaming support, so that we don't have to download the files locally, uh, and uh, it also supports last.fm scrabbling and crap like that. So, uh, have you checked out the uh, web UI of this bad mama jamma? Yeah, yeah. So they have a demo that you can uh, yeah. that you can take a, take a look at. Now, this this is again much like actually probably more to an extent, even more so than language. Tool. This is definitely something that's that's going to uh, that's that's going to have a permanent place in my heart and in my home. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the numerous times. Every, in fact, almost every time I get a, a gathering of more than four or five people in the house, inevitably it comes up where somebody says, "Hey, do you have anywhere I can plug in my phone? I, I want to show you this song. I want to play this. I want to do this." No. This solves that problem yeah, because essentially, I essentially I would put that server. I would let it run uh, access on my guest network. Let them log in. I can choose the music that goes into that uh, into that base, so that they can they can log in and then say, "Well, I want to play this song, or I want to play that song," and then I can tie that into my whole house audio. Yes. So it plays everywhere in the house. And it plays out by the grill, that kind of thing. I can change the songs from my phone while I'm standing outside grilling. Yes, and if you want. <clears throat> it, has, it comes with um, it comes with stream URLs, so you can have it'll it'll automatically generate. So right here, I I've, this is from this. This is from this is a, this has created an, a, a, a ice cast stream for me automatically. That's where that music yeah. is coming from, from Groove mm-hmm. Basin. So anything that supports IceCast, which is any web browser, can stream from this thing. The other thing that's really cool about it is people that are at your house could upload to it if you allow them. They can upload their own tracks and they can download tracks from it. It also has a pretty cool auto DJ mode. <laughs> so if you combine auto DJ mode with the stream URL, you essentially get yourself a really quick and dirty uh, internet radio stream. It's mm-hmm. look. I'm I'm streaming music from this demo right and, now. And I'll tell you what. There's another thing too. And this this actually might kind of piss you off, but I love it. Is it they in, they they explicitly say on their website, uh, Groove Basin will work with your personal music library, not an external. Uh, music service Groove Basin will never support DRM content. I actually like, I love the fact that they are they are very yeah. upfront that yeah. we're not going to do right. we are not going to do you know Spotify or Pandora. No, not none of that. You want you put your music on there and you stream it. And I like having all of I like owning all my music. Mm-hmm. I like having the actual mm-hmm. files and I like uh, well, I like not having to deal with, with already, the issues I, that you run into with streaming. I already have them all on an NFS share in my house mm-hmm. and I already have and I have a I have Archbox sitting in front of that NFS mount mm-hmm. that can just run this really easily. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, by the other thing I like about it, just if you prefer this with your own music player, because you'd have to keep this in a tab or, or make it a standalone web app, um, is yeah. it's, it does support all keyboard controls. So everything's hot keyable. Yeah. You don't have to click and point the entire time. Mm-hmm. So it really brings... It, it's if. If you're looking for a whole house media streaming solution, you're not happy mm-hmm. that Subsonic went licensed and pay. You don't want to set mm-hmm. up a whole Plex server 
uh, just to do music, and you'd prefer to have something that's open source that works with a hell of a lot of devices. Anything that supports a, an MP3 stream is going to work with this. Uh, GrooveBazin mm -hmm. is a great way to go. It's free. It's open source. The code's up on GitHub, and you can check it out. The uh, URL to grab this is at GrooveBazin.com. Basin.com. Really nice. Uh, really nice. Uh, really nice. I really like this. I think I want to set mm -hmm. this up at the studio. Yeah, yeah. So that would solve the the issue, right? When we when uh, when we were there on on whatever it was yes, Tuesday, Wednesday, we yes, do card yes. night, and hey, listen, we want all we wanted to do was play music, and then there was like the seven songs or whatever that the the fire could see, yeah. that got really old, and it's like if we had this, that would have totally solved that problem. Yeah. Yep, yep, so. yep, yep, yep. Hey, I just want to mention really quick because there's a few things coming up. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Uh, Southeast Linux Fest. We already have the meetup set for there. That's June 12th, Friday, June 12th. If you're going to go to Southeast Linux Fest, uh, go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. You can say hey to Noah and uh, Mr. Sis and probably Rotten Corp is going to make it down there too. I won't be making it, but most of the crew will be and Noah will be down there. Are you going to stream live from self? Is that the plan? Do you think we're going to stream live from yeah, self, Mr. Chris? Yeah, we are not only going to stream live from self, we are going to stream live on a custom-built Linux broadcasting rig that we started... <laughs> <laughs> like but we started in in Washington and continued to uh, and continued to 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 work uh, to work on while we were here. Yeah. Um, and now we've got it perfected, and we've got uh, there's uh, the uh, everything is kind of fine tuned and finely honed, and I I, I you think it's ready I don't for production. Say, well, it, it's totally ready for production. The only thing I am missing is, do you know how bad, like so badly, I want to get one of those wireless HDMI transmitters and get a, a GoPro on a DJI Phantom, <laughs> and and I just I yes. don't. Know if I don't know if I can financially do it. I don't know if I can feasibly do it. I don't know if I can do it without pissing off Jeremy. But if I can, if I can somehow finagle all those things, I would love to open up our live coverage of self with uh, with a drone shot of a phantom. Jeremy will totally let you do it, man. Just keep it on the deal and don't say it on air, and we'll be fine. No, yeah, he, he's kind of guy that would kind of go for the stuff like that, though. Meetup.com/slash Jupiter Broadcasting. So uh, meet up with Noah and the crew itself and. Uh, uh, and then uh, BSD Can will be going on the same weekend up in Canada, and Alan and Chris Moore will be there, and we'll have a meetup set up for that soon as well, and other events all over the all over the world, not just local events. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And if we got enough people there, I'd be willing to hand over some management of that to the community to set up their own local events if you guys just want to get up and to get together to chat about Linux. So that's meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. But no, with the picks all done, let's do the news. It's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com. That will give you our new higher special promo price, which I'll tell you about in just a second. Give you the nice discount, but also, more importantly, keeps the show going. Let's be honest. This show is a little support for the Linux Action Show, last.ting.com. Here's what they're doing, though. This is really exciting, Noah. Brace your brain for this. When you go to last.ting.com, you're going to get $50 off your first Ting device. Holy cow. Yeah, I know. And if you got a Ting-compatible device, you'll get $50 of service credits. What's up? It only lasts till the end of June. So jump on this because Ting is hardcore rocking these days. They, I'm going to tell you about another update they just did at their website that is great for us customers. But uh, probably the bigger picture stuff is they spent um, a year 
investing in the CDMA network. So their CDMA partner has built out their network to a tune of like $400 million in the last few years. So they really built out the CDMA network recently. And then starting the beginning of this year, they brought on a GSM network. So now on the Ting network, you get GSM or CDMA to choose from, which means there are a lot of devices you can bring. But the other nice advantage of that is depending on your area, you can pick which one is stronger. Like the devices like the Nexus 6, Nexus 5, you can just swap out over to CDMA or Ting or CDMA or GSM. That's really nice. But here's the sweet sauce. With Ting, you only pay for what you use. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. And whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay. It's a flat $6 for the line. And then you just pay your usage. And it's any applicable taxes, of course. And the nice thing about this is you can have multiple devices. And you don't have to have like a default, oh, $40 per line. I'm going to have to pay $40 for the data on this. It's just I have a couple of phones, whichever phone I use. That's how I pay for it. Plus, they have no contracts and no early termination fees. So you don't have to worry about being stuck in anything, and all of the phones they sell are unlocked. Are you starting to get it? Are you starting to get how Ting's a little bit different? Even there's, there's other companies out there that they think they can put on a leather jacket and say things that you like to hear and give you a free Spotify, and all of a sudden they're hip and they're changing the industry, when in reality they're just in a tough spot and they're trying to respond the best they can. And they can't really change it up to the degree Ting can. But the Ting model works like nobody else. First of all, Ting's an MVNO. That gives them the flexibility to move around to the networks that give them the best deals, also the best coverage combinations, and flexibility. Then they can wholesale those prices directly onto you. So that's why you're only paying for your usage. The other guys, they can't touch that model. That's just not how they're built. So they can't compete at the same level that Ting can compete at. Then to really give a lot of value on top of that, Ting has no hold customer service. You call them at one 855 ftw anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. And a real human being answers the phone. That's value those other guys can't afford to bring you. And then on top of that, they have the best website in the industry to manage all of this. Everything from just checking your usage to deleting and activating devices. And in fact, Ting just recently revved their self-help site and gave it a nice makeover at help.ting.com to give even more resources and tools to customers like me. Now, I've been a Ting customer for over two years, and as a Ting customer for two years, I've saved over $2,000. Go to last.ting.com, use their savings calculator, and see how much you could save. No contracts, pay for what you use, unlocked phones, helping make a difference in the mobile industry. Are you getting it? This is Ting, last.ting.com. And by the way, remember that $50 service credit? Seriously consider this. The Netgear Zing, it is an LTE Wi-Fi hotspot that is no contract, and you only pay for what you use. And if you go to last.ting.com, it goes from $164 down to $114. And then it's no contract. It's a $6 hotspot. And you just turn it on when you need it. And if you don't even need it at all, you can turn it off. You don't even have to pay the $6, and you turn it back on. Ting lets you do that. There's all kinds of devices you can get from feature phones to the, you know, the Nexus 6 or whatever. But if you're, a, if you're a sysadmin, if you're in IT, if connectivity is super important to you, $6 a month to have LTE tri-band at your fingertips, and this is the one that has the OLED screen, so you get like how much battery life is left, your signal strength, you can manage your Wi-Fi password settings all right on the device. You don't have to like go to some crappy web UI to have the OLED touchscreen. And it's $114, no contract, $6 for the line, and you just pay for your usage. Last.ting.com. Go check them out. That $50 service credit or discount off the device ends June 30th. Last.ting.com. I like that like that a lot. Noah, we should probably start with uh, somebody that has a lot of ambition in the mobile industry. That would be Canonical and Mr. Mark Shuttleworth, who made quite a bit of news on the 21st, which I think was Thursday, 
when uh, ZDNet had an exclusive interview with him where he said that he's considering taking Canonical public. IPO, initial public offering, would mean that they would be a public company with disclosing financials, having a board, all of these things, you know, like like Red Hat is and, and things like that. Uh, Noah, you kind of come at this more from an enterprise perspective, more from a Red Hat enterprise background. Does this seem like a slam dunk no-brainer to you, or do you worry about it changing Ubuntu? Yeah, I, I don't like it at all. I, I mean, so you're right. Red Hat is uh, Red Hat is a public tra- publicly traded company, and, and they've done very, very well. But Red Hat has also uh, taken a real firm line in the stand to say, you know, we're going to stay an open source company. We value these ideals. Um, and that's probably why every Red Hat employee I see is actually using Red Hat or Fedora on their company-issued ThinkPad, not... Uh, you know, not not a, not a mm. MacBook. Well, I don't. Um, but I, I, I don't I, think I like I the. I don't think I like the implication though that Canonical isn't an open source company because well, the majority of what they produce, like everything they've done with Ubuntu Phone, I, the CLA exists, yes, but the code itself is open source. Yeah, and, and I guess so. The the thing that concerns me about Canonical is, I I feel like Canonical. It can't decide which direction to to focus down and and go. In. I feel like they just change direction with mm-hmm. the wind depending on well, what they think. I, the, and this is before they have the input of a board. This is while this is while they're still a privately owned company. Let me pause you right there because this is this is where I want to pick it up. And this is why I think this actually might be a good thing. Because what you just said is exactly the kind of behavior that would end when they become a public clump company. Two things have to happen. Canonical. I don't know what their financial situation is, but they're probably not making billions. So their big their big offering isn't going to be that they're rich, right? Their big offering is Canonical has a really compelling story around Internet of Things, around cloud. These are the words they're going to use, right? Cloud mm-hmm. and, and IoT. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is they actually do have a pretty compelling story, air quotes. And they will have to sort of be locked into that path, I think, major, sort of, when they mm-hmm. if they became a public company because that is what's going to produce revenue. So I think, in a way, it's sort of Mark saying – uh, in fact, uh, maybe I grabbed a couple of quotes here from this article that, that kind of under, underscore this point. I think uh, he, so here's what he said. He said, the decision won't be entirely his. I need to talk it over with my canonical team. He said that they've been seriously kicking around internally for the last several months. What is prompting Shuttleworth to think about it is taking the company, taking the public punk company, uh, she, taking the public, taking the company public is we now have a story, he says, that the market can better understand. And I agree. They do. Like, you can wrap your head around what is Ubuntu? What is its value? It's kicking ass mm-hmm. in the cloud. Uh, they've got this new transactional system that uh, Microsoft and GE and Asus have all said they're going to partner with Canonical to use Ubuntu on their Internet of Things devices, whatever the hell those are. So, mm-hmm. again, but to Wall Street, right? To Wall Street, that's starting to make sense. Mark goes on yeah. to say, so much is moving to the cloud. Machine learning, platform as a service, and big data are all flying on Ubuntu. The Internet of Things will be the defining technology story of our time. Machine intelligence will move on, on the edge with Ubuntu and through our app's store. While this is totally embryonic, it's coming in and it fits well with our cloud vision. In short, mm-hmm. Canonical may be looking to the cloud for profits, but the company will not be abandoning. This is, goes on from the article, not Mark's quote. The company will not be abandoning its efforts in Internet of Things, smartphones, or the desktop, which is best known in Linux circles. So mm-hmm. this might give them this, the very stability you're talking about. I don't know. I, it, to me, it sounds like you are. It, it, to me, it sounds like you are cementing the instability. Uh, if 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 in, it, 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 nowhere in that article does it say we started by making a desktop 
uh, operating system, and we've continued with the desktop operating system. And because it made sense to strip out the desktop part of the desktop operating system and 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 hold that five-year LTS and use that as a server operating system, which has worked very well for us, I feel like we're I feel like we're just we're going to cement this idea that we have to continue on by running Ubuntu on everything imaginable that's connect that's connected. And I don't think that is a good fit. Sure, for, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I mean, I don't know. Think I about guess, this, though. But it's, if you could go, if you could come to the market with, I mean, Mark and team are super, super good at really selling the idea around something, you know, and making people yeah. understand the idea of convergence, making people understand the idea of Ubuntu TV, uh, making people under really even understand using uh, uh, using things like Ubuntu in a cloud instance on, and managing with Juju. Like, even though it's a complicated topic, they can even pretty successfully communicate that. I, when I think about that, and I think about how this kind of is has and has remained their sweet spot for years, I think... I would be compelled. I would be motivated to maybe even buy stock. Like I don't know if I actually would a afford or b if that would be a conflict of interest. But like I think they have a shot at this. I think if they found something that worked for them and they've had they had to go public like this and they have a board and they're on the line like this, I think this could line them up to be a really successful company because they do have a pretty good head start on this really popular, fast and growing segment of devices. So where does the, where does the money come from? Because it's not the, because the reality is is I I still am yet to be sold that that Canonical is going to penetrate the mobile market. I think that if you're a device manufacturer and and you're making a small portable mobile device, you're still going with Android, and there's certainly not there there's certainly not an, enough investment in the desktop for them to make a significant amount of there. So where if if you're a potential investor, where 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 are you getting your returns from? Well, you know what what what. Is it's got to be the answer to that is maybe they're going to have support contracts and licensing and you know uh, when when an OEM buys the Ubuntu phone they 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 contract with Canonical to customize it and, and bring in their own brandings and customizations and when a vendor like Acer or Asus or or GE deploys a refrigerator running Ubuntu Snappy, I would assume GE is taking out a fairly lucrative contract with Canonical to provide support for that. That's where the money will come from. And nowhere in there did I say desktop. Yeah. So there's so everything about what you just said doesn't it, it, it makes me nothing about that makes me happy because one, I, if I'm an investor, I still I'm still I'm sitting back and I'm going, listen, every device I've seen, at least if I know what I'm talking about, every device I've seen that's embedded lately is shipping with Android. I mean, yeah, for crying out loud, yeah. the cars, cars yeah. are going to standardize the, right. the, the infotainment se- system on Android. So I- I- Android is, is to break that market yeah. is, I, I think, is a bit of a pipe It seems like and a then, foregone conclusion. So, and then to add to that, now you're saying that, that uh, now you're saying that if, if by some miracle that succeeds, what we wind up with is a is a bastardized version of the original operating system that is catered towards the carriers in the in the in the sense of of smartphones that makes me even less happy hmm. so i don't i mean unless i'm missing something here I, i'm just not seeing i'm just not seeing how this works out well for us as, as speci- specifically as desktop linux well, users well i'll tell you this I, I think i think the jury's out on that um 
you know, uh, if they if they were really had a complete vision, I think the desktop still re has to remain part of it because uh, you need to have those developers that are writing applications for servers for the cloud. You need to have them developing it on Ubuntu. People that are creating Docker images, they need to be developing those on Ubuntu. People creating games for SteamOS probably need to be running Ubuntu desktop. So there's still an, a market need for that that doesn't without them having a presence there makes their other products less compelling. So I think they're somewhat motivated to keep the desktop going and make it a good product, and they have to bring it in line with the snappy and the transactional stuff so it's less work for them, which will probably end up making a better, more stable product in the long run, I suspect. What I worry about is, to me, this shows it's good and bad, and then we can probably move on. But this shows to me how nimble Canonical is. Like, uh, this That's to me true. sounds like a pivot of the focus of the entire company that they're willing to consider, even though they haven't really had anything hit the market yet for mm -hmm. the phone mm -hmm. or the Internet of Things device. The BQ device is shipped, and the M4 is now order, uh, being able to order, but in terms of scale with user adoption and generating revenue, like they don't have a product out there that's generating a lot of revenue that some companies would be like, well, this is where our money's com coming from now. Let's go this direction. Uh, Mark... Yeah. Maybe to his credit, is able to you know he's looking at desktop, he's looking at server, he's looking at mobile, and yep. he's looking at Internet of Things, and he's like, I, I even though right now my money's coming mostly from over here, I think it's going to be coming from over here, and even though I only I'm yeah. only a couple of months into this or a year at most, I'm I'm going to pivot the whole company and maybe even go IPO yep. and take the company in a whole new direction. That's both scary mm -hmm. because it you know this company that we're also dependent on is really flexible, but at the same right. time it shows that they're not going to get stagnant and let the market pass them by. Yes. So yeah, I don't I don't think anyone could ever accuse Canonical of uh, of of being a company yeah. that that's unwilling to change or unwilling to listen to what the market is telling them or what their audience is telling them or what. That is not that has never been a complaint of mine of of Canonical. I think you're right. I think they're they're very good of pivoting on a dime uh, when they think that. The market is demanding it, so they see this change and they say, "Listen, <clears throat> it seems like mobile is the is the next thing. We're going to go into mobile." That that part is true, but like I like I uh, like um, yeah. I, I, I guess I see Linux distributions in particular succeed when they are highly focused and highly concentrated on one thing and don't try to do yeah. the let's do everything. Well, and isn't that interesting so. in the contrast with our interview with Jeff coming up in just a little bit? A super focused distribution, really trying to make Enlightenment the best desktop possible based on Ubuntu, but yet they're taking that focus to the next level. So it's exactly what you're talking right. about. Perfect contrast mm -hmm. uh, for the story. Let's move on. Let's do a quick news story, and then we'll get into some more stuff, just to kind of get the pace picked back up. Uh, those mm -hmm. of us who are using high DPI displays, like the XPS 13, can rejoice because Chrome, as just the stable version of Chrome and Chromium, are now shipping with high DPI support full menus, URL bar, the web page, and also, uh, sort of unrelated but same in timing, WebGTK Plus just got another update this week that sort of rounds off its high DPI support. So there are now two WebKit-based browsers, or maybe Blink-based browsers, on the Linux desktop that it looks so amazing. I can't, I can't, there's no way for me to show it to you unless I was recording this on a high, D there's no way for me to show it to you, but my God, Noah, when you, I, I now have a situation under Linux now where GNOME 3 is high DPI and my main mm -hmm. application I use the most, Terminal and Chrome yeah. are high yeah. DPI, <laughs> and Noah, it looks so good. It, it looks, mm -hmm. I, I can't, there's only way I can explain it is my Linux desktop looks super high end. It looks super yeah. high end. Like it, yeah. It looks like it should be like a $3,000 computer. It, yeah. it is so amazing. I'm so happy Chrome has high DPI to support now. And the performance mm -hmm. is way better because I'm no longer zooming. My web page is up 200%. They're at 100%. Right. So the, mm -hmm. every, everything is, it is getting to be 
bit by bit by bit, better and better for high DPI users under Linux. And this was a major update if you're a Chrome user. Uh, and so I'll, I just, I'm going to keep watching the high DPI support. I've, I'm also testing it under uh, KDE to give uh, my experiences there. But I'm really happy if you're a Chrome user or, a, or a, like a Midori or um, a, web, a GNOME web user, definitely get the latest version. It's super up, up uh, worth it. Now, I'm not so sure about the next Firefox version. Noah. Well, so Firefox does have uh, ha does have uh, pixel scaling. So if you go oh, into, I'm not. That's well, not what I'm worried about. Oh yeah, go ahead. Though. I, well, I'm just saying if, if Firefox is usable on a high DPI display, yeah, yeah, with with one simple tweak, uh, you go into bot.compeg and yeah. just change that pixel scaling into two, and, and the the web browser becomes usable. Right. Up until now, there's been no reasonable way for me to use Chrome on my Pixel. Yeah. It just didn't work at all there because is, so everything was so small. They're both doing the Zoom trick, right? Where this is now native deep, high DPI support. Uh, I guess, but the problem was in Firefox, if if then I have I have to essentially scroll every new tab that I open. Or I mean, the nice thing about changing that the nice thing about changing that pixel scaling is, by when I hit uh, Control Zero to go to zero everything out, make everything normal, everything is yeah, a normal size. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. still not super super tiny. Whereas right. if I'm if I'm zooming in ev on on every tab or every new window everything gets all mm -hmm. out of whack yeah which i didn't like Let's try so. out chrome now next time uh so this is actually what i was referencing to mozilla is going to roll out suggested tiles to firefox beta users next week and then all users this summer and these suggested tiles we kind of talked about them a little bit before uh there's they will push recommendations to users new tab page based on the sites they have previously visited and it's hitting the beta channel now the company said that uh it'll also be hitting the android version soon I'm going to play a little bit of this video uh, just so we kind of have an idea of what it's about. And then we'll talk about this because this is probably going to upset some people on the Internet, I would imagine, being in this Internet. With that commercial development comes many benefits. The balancing public benefit with commercial profit is crucial because the Internet is a global resource. Keeping this in mind, one area that needs better balance is digital advertising. As the medium has evolved, Personal data and information has been collected and then shared with third parties across the internet without the user even knowing. And despite being intrusive, these practices merely target audiences rather than engage users, thereby leading to a lack of transparency in what's going on for both the user hmm. and the advertiser. But it doesn't have to be this way. We believe new marketing channels can exist where brands begin to participate in unique and trustworthy conversations with customers. This belief is what led us to develop suggested tiles. So their pitch here, this is, I did not expect this because I haven't watched this video yet. So their pitch here is, let us do the advertising because you can trust us instead of having the websites do the advertising. Yeah, you know what I think, Chris? I think it's ridiculous and pathetic that they have to go <clears throat> and craft this video to get us as free users of an uh, of a web browser of of a of a world class web browser just so that they can just so that we don't get upset that they need to make a couple bucks to fund the development and ongoing operations of Mozilla I think that's ridiculous well the, when I open a new tab and they want to put some suggested tabs that or uh, suggested yeah. tiles that enough that alone on a free web browser mm -hmm. is so that they can fund the, the, their operations mm -hmm. that alone is enough to piss people off how I are you gonna feel how are you gonna feel when it's uh, an Apple ad 
one of their first partners. I don't I, I, I don't care. Here's the thing. When I open a new tab, first of all, there's a way to shut it off. You can go and you can say that don't put anything in my tab. Just just have a blank blank tab. So if it really bothers me that much, I'd shut it off. But you know what? Frankly, I don't care what's in the tab when I open it up because I'm about to type in a URL. How many times do you open up your browser and stare at it and go, what website do I want to visit today? You open your <laughs> web browser because you need to go to Google or yeah. you need to go to, you well, know, whatever. And I'm not, I, when I open the tab up, I'm ready to type. I have half the URL types practically before the web browser is populated so the screen. These directory tiles are basically sponsored content. Uh, and so they're going to work with sponsors to uh, populate these. And um, I think where people get upset is Firefox is supposed to represent the best of what the free web can be. Like a web that mm -hmm. has no other baggage attached to it. No other um, strategy tax associated with it. No other ulterior motives associated with it. It is supposed to represent what the best of the internet can be if you use a free web browser and you follow standards and it's developed out in the open. And so mm -hmm. for a lot of people, I think they worry that the sponsored version of Firefox is changing that direction a little bit. Focusing yeah. less on freedom for the web and focusing a little more on building a competitive product with something that Google is making. It is. It is. And you know why that is? Because it, in that in that model you described, it relies heavily on not I mean, what if 1% or 10% of Firefox users contributed a, a dollar a month or a, right. you know whatever it is, you could they could probably get away without doing that. But the reality is, we're just too cheap to do it. And not only are we too cheap to to a lot of us are too cheap to uh, to to contribute to to these projects that we use every single day. But then on top of it, we want to complain when they want to put tiles in unpopulated web browser tabs that if it really bothers you, you can turn off. There is no way, there is no way anyone's going to convince me uh, that that anyone has a, a legitimate right to be upset about My this. Only I, I'm just not seeing it. I agree. I mean, you got to you got to be able to support the web browser. The Mozilla Foundation mm -hmm. has initiatives they need to be able to, uh, to finance and push forward. The only major concern I have here is maybe in the enterprise space, even like you said, it can be disabled. If it can't be disabled, like through group policy or some sort of uh, network-wide administration system, you might see system administrators opting not to use it because they're worried about tracking, even though, you know, Mozilla is doing client-side filtering, trying to make this better for user privacy. It still might be something in enterprises where it just becomes that browser with ads. There's a possibility they could get labeled as yeah. that. So, and again, I don't know enough about the internal workings of Firefox to know if this would work, but could you set up one browser and then just copy that Mozilla oh, sure. profile over to oh. across the network? You could probably create an installer that doesn't, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of ways to do it, yeah. but I could, you could see. Well, the, re the reason is when you, when you bring up the corporate thing, I could actually see that becoming an issue I, they, because they they are particular on 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 things like what bookmarks are are on a default install i yeah. I, I can only imagine that they're yeah. not going to be real happy right. if when the tab comes open then then could, certain things are being you advertised imagine, could you imagine if it was your competitor being advertised uh yeah i mean so most of the places that i've worked with that have those kind of uh stringent requirements have some they specify when the web browser is open this has to be the yeah. default and this web page has to load right. by default and i don't know how they're going to feel well, right. if a new tab is opened and then all of a sudden like you said you know the content can change yeah. yeah yeah so i could see that actually being an issue but it could even and, and honestly so no it could even be an issue if it becomes a task that the administrators have to take uh, take on when they set up a new workstation, and they might just say, "Ah, oh, we're just going to switch oh, to Chrome." That's not going to happen. 
Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah. There's uh, there's no way that when when I'm setting up, you know, 150, 200, you know, 500 uh, clients, there is if you think I'm going into every one of those no. clients and turning off uh, a, a new tech, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, but like I said, there's got to be a way to yeah. uh, Do to, to image that or, or or push a change out globally. And if that happens, um, you know, but that would be the one piece of legitimate criticism I could see is inside of a corporate environment that that has these requirements. If there's yeah. no way to push it globally, and- I could see that being. And, you know, uh, just my, I guess my final thought on this is uh, I, I totally understand why the Mozilla Foundation needs to do this. I want them to stick around for a very long time. I think Firefox is a great browser, and I would even be willing to donate. Um, yeah. I, in fact, my contributions in the past is I have bought in Firefox swag every few years. So, like, one of my mm-hmm. favorite bags that I had for years was a Firefox laptop bag, and I have a Firefox shirt, a Firefox polo, and stuff like that that I've, you know, that's been my contribution over the years because it's really good swag, too. Um, mm-hmm. I worry that they're doing this when Chrome is still really strong. And uh, it just got even better under Linux, plus WebGTK, it just got better under Linux. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of really good other alternatives out there for users. So good luck to Mozilla. You know, here, one, final, one final thought. Yeah, you know, the, a way around that corporate thing would just be to have a corporate version of Firefox that costs, uh, you know, 200 bucks. Um, or a hundred bucks or something like that. And if you and if you did that and you could pay for the, for the version, um, the same companies that I'm talking about that have these strict requirements, believe me when I tell you, they'd have no problem cutting a check to say if that's what we got to do to get this software. If it costs a couple thousand, the kind of company that's big enough to care about those minute little things, usually they're not going to have a problem. They expect to pay for software anyway. But as 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 a person who sits down on his desktop and is able to install Firefox on every device I own at absolutely no required charge to me, I have zero problem. Zero. Yep. problem if they Same. can make some money yep. about putting some some uh, some suggested time. I might even click them just to help them out. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So this is an interesting change of pace, though. Mozilla says it's giving up on its dream of a $25 Firefox smartphone. Uh, CNET reports that in an email to employees sent out Thursday, CEO Chris Beard made it clear, remember they got the new CEO, that the company will soon be changing its mobile strategy. We have not seen, this is a quote from the email, we have not seen sufficient traction for a $25 phone, Beard wrote. He went on to say that we will focus on efforts that provide a better user experience rather than focusing on cost alone. The company seems determined to produce enticing options across a broad range of phones. Mozilla is thinking about adding support for Android apps as another way of giving Firefox OS a boost. Beard hints it would be limited to key apps rather than allowing any or all Android apps onto the platform. So dropping the $25 phone, adding support for Android apps, is Mozilla's dream fading away? Are they going to be too mixed in with the comp- competition now, Noah? Yeah, it's, it seems like that, right? Like, So what hap- every time we talk about uh, smartphones or, or Ubuntu Touch or <clears throat> Firefox OS, what, the first words out of my mouth are always, Mozilla has been very clear that they're developing a phone for developing worlds that don't necessarily require uh, all the fun bells and whistles it that we have, have here s- in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, right. That has always been their their high focus that I've always appreciated, and I've used the $25 phone, and it's very usable. So I'm super disappointed to see that that uh, that they're they're giving that up because I I think it had a lot of potential. I think that if you're in I think if you live in Africa, in in certain parts of Africa, and twenty five dollars is probably more than you can imagine to begin with. So, yeah. uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, as as every other platform continues to move forward, and we get you know the, you know look at the advantages of HTML five and 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 where we've gone, first person shooting, gaming, and stuff like that. As all of this stuff begins to get more advanced, what is the purpose of a twenty five dollars smartphone if you can't use it with you know ninety percent of of the existing 
uh, ecosystem. I uh, I'm really interested because I I would be really surprised if they totally abandon the low end because it seems like that yeah. is such a that is that is a Google, Google can't even get down there with Android One, right? So, mm-hmm, but I can mm-hmm. understand why they're having a hard time. You know, no. Truth be told. Um, I felt like Fire... Now, I don't know. I have not used one of the more recent builds of Ubuntu Touch on, like, the BQ. But mm-hmm. the last time I had on my Nexus 5, which was about about four months ago, th- three mm-hmm. months ago, um, I felt personally like Firefox OS had less of a gap to close than Ubuntu Touch did at the time. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I could see them taking it. Plus, it's it's pretty lightweight. Uh, I, yeah. I, I do worry about them getting muddied. But I think when it comes to this particular market, I... I have such a hard time breaking out of the U.S.-centric view I have of the mobile market that it's hard for me to fully gauge how successful. My gut says this makes them just another B or C player, yeah. but I don't know for sure. Yeah. So you know why I think you say that you didn't feel like uh, it had so much of a gap to close? Because I think, I think that that is because Firefox from the get-go has said, listen, all we have basically done is put a web browser on a phone and your apps are simply just HTML5 apps. Now, when you do that, when you create that box and you define that up front, it eliminates a lot of expectations. You don't bother going to look for a mail client. It doesn't have a mail client. Does it have a Telegram client? You don't look for those things because you either know if that exists uh, as a as an HTML5 app or it doesn't. And then in the back of your mind, you also know that because it's HTML5, it's mm. worth it for a developer yeah. to develop an app There's for less that risk. platform because it'll run on every yep. exactly it'll yep. run on everything. Yep. So I think I think because of the way they structured themselves and the way they position themselves, I think they it allows us to give them a little bit more slack. And if you if you move away, and I'm not saying they're they're going away from the the concept of HTML5, but if if they if they start to move focus from that, they they probably open themselves up to more criticism. Yeah, at least that would be my concern. Uh, but if you could get a few core Firefox apps on there or uh, Android apps on there, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll wait mm-hmm. and see. I guess it sounds like we'll probably be more uh, to hear about. And uh, it sounds like you and I are going to have. We often run into folks from the Mozilla Foundation when we go to conferences. So we're going to have questions. Yeah. Yeah. We'll ask mm-hmm. them when we see them and just find out what's going yep. on. Uh, you know, we've talked about CoreOS. I don't know what to make about this Intel announcement. Uh, Intel has announced Clear Linux, a new container-based Linux distribution from Intel. The people that make your CPU, probably. Uh, it's <laughs> in a detailed article at LWN.net, Intel engineer uh, described the aim to build a container system where one can use the isolation of a virtual machine technology along with the benefit of containers. The resulting system is Clear Containers. It uses the Linux kernel native KVM hypervisor, but runs in such a way that it avoids most of the startup time overhead typically associated with spinning up a KVM instance. Intel also claims it can leverage SystemD and a few kernel-level memory organization tricks to slim down and speed up other processes even further. Other aspects of Clear Linux also harken back to CoreOS's roots and not only containers, but also system management. Instead of delivering system software as a slew of hundreds of individual update packages, each edition of Clear Linux, including all its bundled software, is delivered as a single monolithic unit, kind of like Ubuntu Snappy. Intel says this is, has an advantage. With the clear Linux OS, there is one single number that is sufficient to describe the version of the software on the server. Now, that said, any updates pushed to the system are done via binary Delta technology, so updates to a given version can only contain changes, not an entire new copy of clear Linux. Now, here's the catch, and I don't know what to make of this. Intel says that it's unlikely that Clear Linux is going to be adopted rapidly into production in a way that CoreOS has been, but rather to serve as a way to demonstrate individual OS technologies that could be re-implemented in software. I don't know what to make about this, but what I do know is they have done some crazy wizard magic to KVM. Mm-hmm. And they're, wa- they're using system... I read the LWN article. They're using systemd 
and they're bypassing uh, so much stuff for the regular Linux stack. Basically, it's systemd and the kernel. They don't they mm-hmm. don't even pretend to, to be on any hardware, even though they're using KVM. They don't mm-hmm. they don't like front like as a as a virtual machine a hardware. They completely bypass any bootloader or anything mm-hmm. like that. They the KVM I don't know exactly how, but KVM itself directly boots the Linux kernel and uses systemd to manage all of the services, and so they're able to get total system isolation using KVM, so you don't have the security con- concerns of Docker, they've managed to reduce the startup time, which Intel figures is the number one issue with KVM, is that it's mm-hmm. like 180 milliseconds versus 10 milliseconds to start a container. And so they mm-hmm. collapse that startup time. They say they've improved security. They've, they, uh, about a virtual machine, a virtual machine has about a 20 megabyte mm-hmm. ma- re- memory overhead versus a Docker's like five megabyte memory overhead. But if you're willing to make that trade, which they think they can get even lower, you get a lot of the benefits of containerization with all of the benefits of uh, VM isolation built mm-hmm. right by Intel. What do you think, Noah? You think it's interesting Intel's getting into this game? Yeah, absolutely. So, so anytime a huge player in the, in, the, in the IT market like Intel gets heavily invested in a Linux project, I mean, there's really no bad way to spin that, right? I mean, any which way you look at it, it's, it's a good thing, even if it is to some degree competition to projects that, that we know and like, right? Mm-hmm. But also, who better... Who better to start uh, making headway on things like virtualizations than the freaking manufacturer of the CPU? Yeah. I mean, if anyone would know, know. how the yeah. kernel could best talk to right. the CPU, right. it would be the guys and, who made the CPU. And built-in future technologies right. on top of their VT and VTD stuff that make mm-hmm. it even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, mm-hmm. is the, that is totally the exciting thing about it. Uh, just a quick shout-out to the Karita project. We had uh, the developer on, the lead developer, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the project's Kickstarter has reached its goal, and we have new builds coming. Uh, and there's an update that we have linked in the show notes. Really cool. So they've reached the second stretch goal through Kickstarter and PayPal donations. And so as of that, they're delivering on brush packs, inking, painting filters, uh, wash flow, normal maps, uh, doodle brushes, experimental brushes, and large brushes, and an SFX pack. Really cool. And new builds have just come out. It's really neat to see the project not only getting the support. Oh, 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 oh. And they just improved uh, PSD Photoshop file importing, saving, and, uh, and uh, exporting. Like huge, huge PSD update. So that's really cool too. And uh, an improvement on the OpenGL canvas under Linux. So a great update from the Karita project. And uh, there's still a chance to back that uh, Kickstarter. Let's go check in and see where they're at. I actually haven't looked for a few days. Uh, so they have 729 backers. They had a goal of $22,000, and they're at $25,000 now with nine days to go. And there's still uh, some stretch goals available to make this really the most kick-ass drawing application on the Linux desktop. Maybe not just the Linux desktop, on any freaking desktop, really. And they want to make it faster than Photoshop, too, with your support. So uh, check it out. They're Karita on Kickstarter. But Noah, with the news all done, let's go talk to Jeff from Bodhi Linux. about to bring Jeff on from the Bodai Linux project. He's the project manager and lead developer of a very unique Linux distribution that probably doesn't get enough attention, so we're going to fix that. But first, I want to tell you about our segment sponsor, System76 Creators. Originators, parents of machines born to run Linux. We have the uh, System76 Meerkat in studio right now. In fact, if you haven't listened to wa- last week's Linux Unplugged, go check it out. I gave a review of the Meerkat and uh, how it stood up as a Linux workstation under Ubuntu, using, med- using it for media production at Linux Fest Northwest, and now how it's running right now, actually. The very call we're doing these interviews on are running through the Meerkat. We're testing it under Arch as a media production machine in our studio. We'll give you a follow-up review on that soon. So I've given it a review as a workstation in Linux Unplugged, and then I'll, have an, I'll give you 
a little take on how it runs as a meter production machine. But I'm pretty impressed. And our interview today is being conducted over a System76 Meerkat. And of course, the website I'm displaying to you is over my Bonobo. When I want Linux rigs in production, I want them to run well because they have to be used every single day. I don't want to fight with my hardware and drivers. I want my Linux to work every single time. System76.com. Get lifetime Ubuntu support. Get machines, desktops, Linux laptops, and even servers designed to run Linux. System76.com. Tell them the Linux Action Show sent you. And a big thank you to System76 for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. Okay, Bodai Linux. Oh, sorry. Right, Bodai Linux. Are you familiar? Are you familiar with it? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we haven't probably talked about it enough here on uh, on the big show. So uh, we wanted to we wanted to write that wrong. And so Jeff is joining us from the Bodai Linux project. Jeff, welcome to the Linux Action Show. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here. So Jeff, tell me a little bit about uh, Bodai Linux. Uh, what is it based on, and uh, how long have you guys been around? Well, first is that uh, it's actually pronounced Bodhi, kind of like okay. the word Jody. That doesn't surprise so, me. <laughs> so and, Bodhi uh, like Jody. Uh, Bodhi is actually uh, a synonym for the word enlightenment, which is the desktop that we happen to use. Awesome. And uh, Bodhi is a Linux distribution that's built on top of the Ubuntu long-term support releases. And that's uh, something we've always done since our inception. I know uh, recently Linux Mint moved to start doing something similar, but uh, Bodhi's existed for uh, almost five years now. And we've been doing, doing that from the start, just kind of moving from LTS to LTS release. I see... Um, we recently had our 3.0 release yeah. earlier this year, rebased on top of Ubuntu 14.04. Okay. So, and that'll be a long-term support version of uh, Bodhi, basically, or Bodhi. Bodhi? Yeah, yeah basically, Bodhi doesn't have Bodhi. non-long-term support releases, so okay. everything we do is long-term support. And was that, did you decide, did you sort of make it that way because that's just, in your opinion, a great platform to base it on? Does it make it easier for you to develop? Why Ubuntu 14.04? I think uh, focusing on long-term support releases makes things easier for both us as developers and our users as uh, as a whole. Um, it makes the more of a uh, rolling release platform as opposed to having to do like full distribution release upgrades every six months, yeah. which can uh, yeah. complicate things if you have additional software it takes sources a ton and of your stuff time like that. Too, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, and it troubleshooting issues if you have you know a full system upgrade mm -hmm. can be kind of a pain so we encourage our users to only reinstall every two years if they want to stay with the latest release or obviously the long-term support means they get five years of support so if it's working just leave it alone so is um is enlightenment good enough to be a desktop environment a full-time desktop environment does it take a lot of tweaks on your part i don't see a lot of distros that use enlightenment as their desktop environment but you know when i play with it here it seems so smooth and elegant what's the story there so, so um, one of the things that I think uh, the Enlightenment team kind of has a hard time or misses on is their their default configurations aren't uh, super sane, which uh, that combined with ah. the fact that they really lacked a structured uh, release cycle for a long time means that uh, a lot of distributions really didn't integrate it. I mean, even if you look at the latest release of uh, Ubuntu, like they don't have the latest version of Enlightenment in the distribution repositories. Right, right. And so is Enlightenment approachable for, uh, say, more average users? Or is it something you consider to be more of a more advanced user's desktop environment? What's your take on that? Is Bodai Linux, when you created it, do you see, do you see it as Linux for everyone or do you see it as for Linux experts? 
Uh, I see it as Linux that is scalable to what your specific needs are. We try not to assume things about our users. We assume that our users are kind of smart enough to do things for themselves, and we provide the tools for them to get where they need to go regardless of their ability levels. Yeah. Let me... Uh let me ask you a, a question. So it seems to me that the Linux distributions that, that tend to have the most success are the ones that fill a specific niche. And I'm curious, uh, does what is the, what, if any, is the specific focus uh, that Bodhi works towards? So um, we kind of call ourselves the minimalist enlightened Linux distribution. We kind of aim to fill a hole in between um, distributions like Arc and Gentoo that give you almost nothing to start with and expect you to install everything, and distributions like uh, Mint or even ones that install lots of different software by default where they assume to make all of the choices for you. We basically give you what is essentially a bare-boned, sane GUI to install the applications that you need for your specific tasks on top of it. Would you argue that uh, Bodhi is a Linux distribution that would be well-suited for low-powered hardware? I would definitely say, and in fact, um, we have a specific uh, release ISO image that supports non-PAE hardware, even mm -hmm. on our 1404 base. So it scales from low-end hardware all the way up to the higher-end hardware. Jeff, what are the uh, minimum system requirements for, uh, for the distro? So for our release that's aimed at uh, older hardware with the non-PAE release, yeah. it's... Uh, the minimum requirements are probably somewhere around a one gigahertz processor and for an ideal experience, uh, 256 megs of RAM, but I have installed it to 128 megs before. Now, if I'm correct, am I right in that the Enlightenment desktop environment's graphical effects are CPU rendered? Or are they GPU uh, it rendered? Actually, it uh, depends on your hardware, what your hardware supports. It has okay. both options. Okay. Very cool. And I, I, I'm curious, uh, I don't follow Enlightenment very closely, but I understand there was a decision to move back to E17 at one point. Am I correct in that? Can you explain that? So um, recently, it was, I believe, last month we announced that we are going to be uh, forking the Enlightenment 17 des desktop, similar to how oh. uh, people forked uh, GNOME 2 into Mate and uh, KDE 3.5 into oh, Trinity. And uh, one of the reasons for that is um, one of the differences between our non-PAE disk and our normal standard release is that the non-PAE disk uh, still uses the E17 desktop just oh, because okay. it's more mm -hmm. resource friendly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the compositing requirements on the E18 plus desktops um, are make it unable to run as effectively on older hardware. So you are going to be taking on a rather large endeavor then if you're going to be forking that. Do you feel that that's going to be a big effort, sort of like the Matei project has become? Are you worried about that at all? Um, I don't think it's going to be that sizable of an investment. And the reason why I say that is because the, the E17 desktop is already very uh, sane and usable as it is in its current state. So basically, we're just going to be um, incorporating some of the same default configurations that Bodhi has for Enlightenment has always had into the default of the desktop, as well as fixing a few of the bugs that were there and were fixed in future releases and backporting them to E17. Right. And so I, I'm also, I also understand, and this is one of the reasons I've actually, uh, I downloaded uh, uh, Bodhi, right? Am I saying that right? Bodhi? Bo Bodhi. Bodhi, sorry. Now I got now I'm confused. But one of the reasons I downloaded Bodhi <laughs> this morning is I wanted to check out, I think it's called the eStore. It's like a front end to installing applications. Uh, can you tell me about this? And, and is it something unique that you guys have written specifically for the distro? So um, the software that powers the online app center, we call it, um, 
is just uh, apt URL. It's a software that uh, Ubuntu developed for installing things clickable through the browser. If you're familiar with the GetDeb website, that uses that same kind of technology to yeah. install applications. And basically, it just allows the user to have the web browser call the package manager right. to install software. So it, there's not necessarily any, uh, does, it doesn't require any desktop app. It's all just using the front end on the website. There's no, there's no like a program and you have to maintain on the desktop. That's nice. That's exactly. Great. And like it fits in with our minimalist approach of not installing extra software on your computer by yeah. default. Yeah. And um, it's a nice middle ground for people that don't know what they're looking for, that we have a lot of newer users looking to install Bodhi on older hardware. And this kind of gives them uh, focused choices for different uh, specific sure. tasks that they're looking to do on their computer. I love this. I mean, you've got user votes and ratings here. I mean, this is honestly a, a better experience than the uh, software center on, on default Ubuntu. So I think it's smart that you guys uh, went web. Good move. So dovetailing onto that, it seems to me that a lot of people, when they go to look uh, for applications, um, one of the biggest things I see from new users is they say, "Well, I went to the web, I went on the internet, and I searched for this particular application, and I couldn't find it, and so I wasn't able to get it installed on my computer." And of course, a lot of times they're they're using you know generic terms. But I wonder if if you were to brand uh, if you were to brand Bodhi, and, and that's all they knew that they had installed, if they were to go out to the internet and 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 look for Firefox for Bodhi, if it would then you know they can hmm. find a link and then just hmm. click on that big install button rather than uh, find, you know, links to a bunch of blog posts or forum posts of people that had problems installing a specific application. Now they just get that install button. I wonder if that wouldn't smooth the experience. I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I definitely think that's one of our goals. Um, the initial idea behind the App Center was that uh, users are very familiar with uh, searching for software on their, you know, their cell phone. So if they can click install on their yeah. Android or iOS device, they can hit install on the website and it works just fine. Uh, one of the big advantages I think our App Center has, as opposed to something like the Ubuntu Software Center, is that um, our goal. Mm, hold on, we, I think we lost his audio there. Stand by. Oh, sorry, Jeff, your audio cut out. Say again. Your can, goal. Can you we, hear me now? Yeah, we hear you. We hear you cut out at our goal. Go ahead. Uh, our goal was to create something that's kind of focused in our choices as opposed to having everything listed there as like the Ubuntu Software Center does because I think um, having uh, too many choices like that for very yeah. new users, which is what the App Center is designed for, is um, can cause confusion and sure. not sure what they're supposed to install. And it's honestly... Obviously, I mean, we don't expect power users to use this website. Jeff, the uh, the take I get away from it is a very kind of clean experience when I look at it. I mean, I, I walked away with not... I feel like I oh, go here, web browsers. Yeah, it's only Chromium and Firefox, but in a lot of ways, uh, I was just... I've recently switched my wife over to Linux, and I was just thinking about having her browse this. This is way more approachable for her. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, a lot of people are are scared by choices. You know, that's one of the things people like there's a, there's a million desktops, there's a million distros, I don't know what to pick. So when they do finally land on Bodhi, we want them to, you know, have their their choices be easier, easier sure. for them to find. So uh, I, I don't know if you've really had a lot of time to reflect on this, but one of the things that's been in the headlines a lot recently is uh, Canonical has a lot of things going on. Uh, there's rumors now of an IPO, which could have a great impact on the long-term uh, focus on the desktop. There's the talk about transition to Snappy and Snappy packages, which could have a pretty big impact on derivative distributions. And so I'm curious if you're watching this with some amount of anxiety, or are you kind of thinking whatever happens, you're going to be able to roll with it. What's your current thought on, on when you're sort of dependent on a, such an important project like Ubuntu when so much of their future appears to be up in the air right now, and at least in a big transition? 
so um, I actually wrote a short blog post. I maintain a small technology blog about uh, snappy packages and what I think about them as a whole. But basically, um, I think the concept of snappy, snappy packages is awesome. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, a push in a direction that not only packaging software for developers, but also getting software as end users could kind of be good for Linux as a whole. Um, in terms of what it means for Linux distributions like Bodhi, uh, the fact that we only focus on the LTS releases for Ubuntu, and Ubuntu has already said that the default for 16.04 will be deb-based, that means in terms of Bodhi transitioning because of snappy packages, we don't have to really evaluate and make that decision until 2018 when we rebase on 18.04 for sure. that LTS. Sure, and I would assume by that point, there's going to be, you know, a lot of feedback in the market about how it's working, a lot you can watch. So you have a pretty good position then to sort of sit back and see where it goes. But it sounds like Correct. you may be optimistic about it. No, definitely. And I'm, I'm always very open to change. In fact, I think people that use Linux and open source software that aren't open to change are kind of hypocritical because, you know, you got here because you were looking for something different, looking for something better. So if we don't keep trying to innovate, we're never going to get better than what we currently have. I can't argue with that. Noah, did you have any other questions uh, for Jeff? I guess uh, the only remaining question is, um, do you have an idea of what the f uh, of some exciting things that might be coming to Bodhi or things that we can look forward to? Well, the uh, the Moksha desktop project that we're going to be working on, yes. you know, the uh, the forking of E17 and trying to make some small improvements to it, uh, that's definitely something that I know a lot of our user base has been looking forward to. Um, when we posted about that, the resounding feedback that we got from people was that, that they weren't super happy with E19 mm. and the you know, the releases after E17, and they had either stopped using Bodhi altogether or they had, you know, rolled back to using E17 on Bodhi, which actually I'm using E17 on Bodhi, so I understand that decision. <laughs> nice. Uh, and so uh, the project continues on. And can you just to sort of wrap up? I'm trying to uh, just place it in my head. How many how many folks are working on uh, Bodhi Linux? Is it mostly just yourself or is there a team? Uh, can you give me some perspective? Uh, we, we definitely have uh, a small team here. I'm the, the primary, what I would refer to as developer. Um, I kind of keep everything organized and flowing, but we have uh, a person that designs our website. We have two or three people that do system administration for our servers. We have another guy that does graphics design. We have two or three other people that regularly contribute uh, code, both to uh, the Enlightenment desktop and now to Moksha itself, as well as develop our small custom tools like EapData and other things like that. Well, it's um, I remember the first time I played with Enlightenment, I remember thinking, oh, desktops can be sort of like the movies. Like, that was my first, like, I was like, this guy, like a Hollywood desktop. And uh, you, you summed up so well at the beginning of the uh, chat where you said a lot of times the defaults are a little crazy and they're not uh, very approachable. Um, and one of the things I love about what you've done with Enlightenment is you've made it sort of shine its best. Like, when I download it, I feel like there's this parallel universe of Linux desktop development that's been going on that we don't really talk a lot about, but it's still extremely impressive. And so the fact that you bring that to people on top of Ubuntu, which means I don't have to worry about my software compatibility. I know I'm still going to have all my PPAs. I know Canonical is going to support LTS for five years and et cetera, et cetera. It makes it a very approachable landing place to try something very fun and elegant without having to go too far out on a branch and way out there in weirdo land. You can still find all the guides, all the how-tos, all the stuff. So it's a really great combination you guys are working on. So definitely keep it up. I've downloaded the ISO, and I'm going to be trying it out this next week. I'm really excited to try it. So thanks for coming on the show. 
Awesome. Uh, one last thing I just want to mention um, is that one of the things we really try to do is have uh, good documentation with our release, good both man. just because yeah. um, EE itself doesn't have a lot of great documentation following it. So uh, if you notice when you first start the disk, you get that quick start guide that pops up, which mm-hmm. um, a lot of questions users have specific to E17 and Enlightenment in general are covered in that. So if you hit any issues, I would definitely recommend checking that out as well as our wiki page has and a lot so of it, great It sounds like if documentation is a priority, it sounds like a pretty solid way maybe for folks to start contributing initially to the project would be through documentation as well and then maybe work their way in and help out further from there. That could be a nice way. Yeah, definitely. I, w- I always tell people there's uh, a lot more ways to contribute to open source than just, you know, writing code and reviewing code. There's there's lots of different, like I mentioned, mm-hmm. we have system administrators yeah. and web developers yeah. and graphics designers, yeah. etc. But you, there is, a, I have a special appreciation for projects that take the documentation seriously because then that means they take the, that kind of contribution seriously, which is a good introduction to open source development. So that's even cooler. You guys can check it out. We'll have links in the show notes as well as video reviews, uh, a couple of cool uh, videos that have been posted up on YouTube that showcase the distribution, and uh, we'll have links to the website and all of that good stuff. So, Jeff, keep up the great work. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. But we do have some email and other items to follow up on before we go. So let's jump into the emails first. And then we have, uh, I got some big news. Alan has some big news. Noah probably has some news. Who knows? I don't I don't know. <laughs> but come first, up with something. Yeah, come up with something. But first, uh, let's read uh, Jason's email. Jason writes in. Hello, Noah and Chris. Uh, I've been watching the show for a while, and I saw how super pissed you are off, how super pissed you are at the Oculus Rift and how they're bypassing Linux. While it's understandable that you should not pass up Linux, your comments about Carmack sounded like you based it on his public persona, i.e. the guy with the big ego, and how he doesn't like Linux. Well, and his many public comments about it, yeah. Well, it's true that he doesn't, he's not the biggest fan of Linux. He does think that open source projects are a great idea. Right. Uh, And uh, he includes a link uh, for a quick one, which I think we actually played that video uh, on the show. Uh, <clears throat> he says he talked about Android OS and how it would make it leaps and bounds over the course of three years. He said that writing code for Android isn't so bad, and he likes how he can easily get the code. He also said that it was a great idea by Google to make the OS free. So even though Android has stayed for, uh, far uh, strayed far from its roots over the last couple of years, uh, he isn't the biggest fan of Linux. Carmack is still trying to give uh, this open source stuff a chance. Okay. Uh, I, I'm... <clears throat> It's hard for me to reconcile that, uh, but uh, I I, uh, I hope that is true. Noah, you had a uh, email that came in asking about your Sony P series. What were you laughing at? Yeah, me? Uh, no, oh, I just okay. so yeah. Well, uh, uh, so yeah, he. Um, let's see here. It's Dan writes in and he says, "Chris and Noah, I just watched last episode three sixty five, the emulation game. Great show. I feel exactly like Noah. I too wish my Android phone ran some sort of form of pure Linux, and I've been looking into the Meizu MX four Ubuntu phone as well. Mm. But it looks like that product won't be in the USA for quite uh, for quite a while. Right. I feel like there is a conspiracy from major telcos in the US to keep us from having a pure Linux phone. I like Noah's purchase of the Sony Vio P series that look like uh, that look great, but the video performance is kind of a deal breaker for." Probably the single core Atom doesn't have enough processing power, and $300 seems kind of steep for a five-year-old portable. For now, I'll be using an Asus EEE PC 1015PX netbook, which is actually pretty, believe it or not, a dual-core 64-bit solution for the same to the same problem. Having a 10-inch screen, it's slightly larger than the Sony, and you're definitely not going to fit it into your pocket. However, the computer is powered by an Atom N570 processor and has 2 gigabytes of RAM. Um, to which I recently replaced its old rotating drive with Intel nice. 120 gig 
SSD. It's still portable enough for me for taking on hiking trips and day trips with the family, etc. The Asus 1015PX works well out of the box with Exabuntu 14.04. Wireless works, sound works. I did have a small issue with the function F5 and F6 key hot controlled the screen brightness, but there's an ACPI backlight command that added uh, to a given file that he lists and says, uh, plus an extra tiny config file in user share x11 xorg.conf.de directory, which had fixed the issue for the hotkeys. Now they work like they're supposed to. I enjoy my Asus netbook with Xubuntu 14. I can play most videos using VLC, including DVDs of it with a external slim DVD reader, and even YouTube plays flawlessly. It's how I watch last Unfilter and BSD now. I have purchased three 1015px units in the last 12 months. They're roughly $125 uh, with a good deal with no dents or scratches. Now, Dan, here's the thing. I actually uh, did not anticipate how much of a problem uh, the no video was going to be. Oh, but- really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so at first I was like, video, how much time do I have to sit and watch videos now, anyway? To, to, to as, quick, as a quick reference, what we're referring to is last episode, Noah showed a really sweet, like, tiny Ultrabook Linux rig that, like, the main drawback was video choppy playback, right? Right. Well, basically non-existent video playback. It's that choppy. But so at first I was like, I don't have time to sit and watch videos. I don't What do I need videos for? Well, I was sitting last night going through show notes and can I watch the videos in the pics? No, I can't watch them because they, I can't, I can't do that. Oh yeah. And then the other, th- so, and then the other thing is too, is and this, I have a feeling can be remedied just by replacing it, but the battery life is, is, yeah. it, it, it turns out that four or five hours just isn't going to be enough. Mm. So I, I'm still working through, it still has not left my side. It's still been in my backpack the entire time because it's still way more convenient yeah. to take that into a restaurant and set it down just in case I need it than it is to haul my stupid computer bag. So I'll still be hanging on to it, but it, it definitely, yeah. de- more so, and then I was thinking about it. One of the other things I wanted to use it was on the airlines. Um, you know, they, they take your laptop away during takeoff and landing, but you can use tablets. So I was hoping I could use <laughs> the, that little portable. Well, it turns out there's, it's useless because I can't really read on a screen that small unless I'm holding it right up to my face. And I'm not going to be watching videos, apparently. So what am I supposed to do with it while I'm on a plane with no internet? So Dan's solution um, was the Triple PC <clears throat> 1015PX. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Which it's not as portable. I'm to, actually. It's not as portable, yeah. but it does <clears throat> seem like a, a pretty nice rig for him. I bet it's no less portable than a tablet, though. Yeah. Because it's right. 10-inch, right? All right. Let's do the next email. Or do we have... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. One more email. I'll yep. read this one. It comes in from what... Or WTF... Uh, H-I-W. Uh, probably, what would we say? WTF hell in something? I'm not sure. Uh, concerning the Megwell uh, my problems, the disconnects you're having from your Megwell units are caused by a change made in the video for Linux driver. So on the pre-show last week, we were having a problem with our HDMI capture. And so he says there's good news. Uh, the lib device uh, VL patch, VL for Linux patch, was merged in FFmpeg's master branch a little over a week ago on Arch, Antigros, and Manjaro. <coughs> if you don't want to wait for the next official FFmpeg build, you can get it from the AUR. So what? So... It's funny because there is some advantages to rolling Linux in production for things like these kind of fixes. And a lot of people in the feedback last week had asked us, couldn't you use CentOS or Debian, a nice, stable Linux distribution for media production? And one of my responses was, unfortunately, we're extremely dependent on things like FFmpeg. And in fact, that even in some cases makes Ubuntu hard to use. Uh, so uh, this, was a good, this was a really good note for us to, do, to know. Um, and uh, I really appreciate uh, WTF keeping us up on the latest developments there. And the good news is, <clears throat> I think we've resolved some of the hardware issues. Noah's right now on a System76 Meerkat, and I've replaced the Magewell uh, capture card with a newer version that's metal. It's really nice. It's a great HDMI capture device to use under Linux. If you just want, bring in an HDMI device, be it like your Xbox, PS, PS4, 3, whatever, or, uh, or camera, Magewell, I think is a great way to so- do it. 
because this continues to come up, if we haven't talked about this enough, basically what it does is it, it appears to your system as a video for Linux device. So it looks just like a webcam would look. So you get a uh, slash dev slash video zero slash video one. So on the, the, the portable broadcast machine, I've, I've got actually, I've got three of them plugged in. And so I get dev zero, dev, uh, video zero, video one, video two, and I can structure those just like I would in any application that would use a webcam. So Skype, it works just fine with. Cheese, it works just fine with. Of course, the applications we use like Jitsi and OBS works just fine with. There it is up on the screen. Um, so they're available $299, available with Amazon Prime um, and a totally native Linux compatible solution. Mm-hmm for capturing 1080p, and I think it does, uh, am I wrong to say it does up to 60 frames per second? I believe you are correct, sir, if you have USB 3.0. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, if you don't, that's fine. You can actually use it over USB 2. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it does fix 60. But uh, yeah, and it's just, you plug it in, and Linux immediately, every, every device, Cheese, Skype, mm-hmm. Jitsi, Hangouts, everything sees it. It just shows up as mm-hmm. a Linux device. It's the Megwell. It's a little expensive, but it works really well. Hey, uh, <clears throat> so that's the emails. Thank you very much. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact to send in your email. Or start a thread at linuxactionshow.reddit.com. ZFS is a topic we bring up from time to time. And now we can all say we know the guy who wrote the book on ZFS. Alan Jude, ladies and gentlemen's book on ZFS is out. You can get it at zfsbook.com. It's FreeBSD, Mastery of ZFS, as Alan would say it. You know, picking the right hardware, arranging your storage configuration, configuring the data sets, repairing it, expanding storage, understanding snapshots, understanding how copy on write works, optimizing ZFS, and, of course, customizing FreeBSD to work best with ZFS. But there's tons of stuff in there even us Linux users could take advantage of. So it's zfsbook.com. Congratulations to Mr. Alan Jude, host of the TechSnap program. Uh, he co-wrote it uh, with a uh, with Michael Lucas, I believe, and they worked very hard on it. And Alan has truly become one of the leading experts on ZFS, which is amazing when you think of what an important technology that is. Uh, to know the guy that's writing the book on it, it's pretty awesome. Now, you Linux users, don't worry. You're not left out. <clears throat> Longtime friend of the show, Jed, who we always see at Linux Fest Northwest and managed to shoot us in the face with uh, Nerf darts, just had an interview on episode 90 of the BSD Now program, and his entire interview was about how he uses ZFS as his root file system under Linux. And so they shot it at Linux Fest Northwest, a producer Q5Sys holding the camera the entire time like a champ, and uh, Jed tells his story about using ZFS on Linux in production. It's a great interview in episode 90 of the BSD Now program, and congratulations to Alan for zfsbook.com you guys are winning it's really cool and i'm definitely checking out jed's interview because uh, uh, that's gonna they I, <coughs> I i they that was a long interview and he I, when i walked by there was some really good deets coming out now one last thing noah before we run um maybe i should have put this towards the top of the show but over the weekend i did a whole bunch of twitter account rearranging and my official Twitter account that you've probably been following for a while if you follow me has now been handed over to the network it's called jupiter signal <coughs> And if you were following me, you're already following it. You don't have to do anything different. Though I do have a new account. It's the same bat channel, but you're just not following it. You go to twitter.com slash chrislas, and, uh, I, uh, and you can, that'll be my personal feed. So I'll do work-related stuff on the Jupiter Signal feed, personal-related stuff on chrislas. Chrislas is essentially a new account, but I just took my old name. So it doesn't really have any followers or anything like that. So if you want to follow my personal account, twitter.com slash chrislas. If you want to follow the official Jupiter Broadcasting account, twitter.com slash Jupiter Signal. And if you want to follow Noah, he's twitter.com slash kernel Linux. 
there you go. So I'm still Chris LAS. It's just under a new account, and I don't have any followers. And the yeah. network is now Jupiter Signal because we renamed my old Chris LAS account. Does that all make sense? Was I clear? That makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. So that, follow the network at Jupiter Signal. Follow Chris at Chris LAS. Yeah, because I realized that like 90% of my tweets were all network related, anyways. But then people yeah. would tweet me personal stuff. And so I thought, yeah. you know what, I should just do a little shift around, and so that's what we did. Well, then move. when people ask, is Jupiter Broadcasting on Twitter, you can say... At Jupiter Signal. Boom. Yep, yep, yep. And go find Noah's day job at altaspeed.com. You might just find his company could provide something you need, altaspeed.com. And don't forget, we do this show live over jblive.tv, 10 a.m. Pacific. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to automatically get that converted to your local time. And last, but absolutely not least, we'd love your contributions at linuxactionshow.reddit.com. News, app picks, runs Linux. We had a great one this week from the subreddit. Discussion threads, your votes and comments on stories make a huge difference. Please do those over at linuxactionshow.reddit.com. It's part of, our, part of our show that's sort of like the source code that you get to tweak and poke at. Then we really do kind of take it in and it makes a better show all, all together. And also being here live helps quite a bit. But the show is available on demand in RSS feeds for audio and video and torrent as well. If you want to help defer some of our bandwidth costs, you can find all of those links in the show notes. Just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Find the recent episode of Linux Action Show. Scroll right down past the download links and boom! There's all those links. Hey, uh, Noah... One more thing before we go. I have a little tease for you right here. You see this? Oh, 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 now, oh, oh. Uh, it's like Christmas. If all, goes, open it? if all goes according to plan, Noah's going to be in studio next week. And uh, mm-hmm. when Noah's in studio, we're going to hook this up. This is something that I think could be really useful for Linux users that, that need to get really consistent video capture out of their Linux computer. Yeah, you know what this is. I know is. what it is. I yeah, know that's it is. right. So I know what it is. this is one of the issues we have a lot is when a, when like you launch a game and it changes your resolution on your Linux box, it X changes the resolution, it breaks video capture, and then your yeah. video capture stuff breaks. But so many games under Linux and stuff change the screen resolution. So this is a tiny little box that has DVI in on one end and DVI out on the other, and we'll have a we'll do a HDMI converter, which I think it actually shipped with, and uh, it will send a consistent signal to our capture, regardless of whatever the Linux machine puts out. So mm-hmm. for those of you at conferences that have projectors and things like that, you could yes. put one, or TVs, you can put one of these in front of the projector, and it will always send a consistent signal to the projector, regardless of what the user is sending into the box, and it does the conversion for you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, it is called the the Geffen, or Jiffen, how do you say it, Noah? The I, I, I don't know, but essentially it sends an EDID profile, a consistent EDID profile across the HDMI, HDMI stream. Yeah. So when when it, when your identifier changes on 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 the client or on the input side, it, the the receiving side doesn't notice. Now the only time that would be bad or that would be unbeneficial is you you mentioned using it with TVs. Sometimes TVs use that EDID profile to determine oh, yeah. how to space out that how to present that image. Sure. And so if you set a, a, an EDID profile for like let's say a, you know whatever the one is that's says, you know, I'm 16 by 9 and I'm this, I'm stretched out all the way, it won't necessarily overscan or underscan because it doesn't know what's being connected to it. That's my understanding. I love so. it. So uh, we're going to be playing with that in studio next week when Noah's here. And that is just, it's just one more thing we're doing to to make the, the, the Linux media process a little smoother, a little more consistent as we move more and more stuff over to Linux. There's sometimes little hardware solutions we come up with. And then later on, we'll incorporate into content for you guys. And when you ask us how to make some of this stuff work, we'll have a pretty solid answer for you. But that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. We'll see you right back here next week. He's asking about my pen. It is a pen. It is a pen. It is 
I believe if you look carefully, you'll find that you have the same pen. After a close examination, I agreed with Noah. I do, in fact, have the same pen. The same pen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have the same background, the same pen. It almost it doesn't seem like we're in the same it's location. So exciting! <laughs> Maybe I can start teasing this. You guys want to see something cool? You guys want to see something amazing? Check this out. This is the new mobile broadcasting rig. Let's see if I... Oh, God, it's heavy. All right. This is the new mobile broadcasting rig. So I don't know how to get in the camera shot. You guys can see that? Can you see that? Wonderful. Okay. Very heavy. Very mobile. Very mobile. Very, very portable. So, um, basically... From top to bottom. First, there is a, uh, if you guys saw that, um, that top little blade, and what that is, is it has all the ports that we need. So it has the HDMI for the cameras, it has the USB port for the, for the, um, uh, the, for the C920s. It's got an Ethernet jack, so, or RJ45 jack, so basically, every place we go, it's a different networking setup. So, all of the internal stuff will be the same for us, and then there's just one jack we plug that cat 5 cable in whatever the facility gives us and then the whole box has networking as well as a, a little uh, pigtail to come out to chris's laptop so he has hdmi and and uh, wired then below that we have the audio compressor and then below that is the headphone amplifier headphone splitter and audio interface and then below that is the power distribution unit and then below that is the actual computer